Welcome back to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. This will be episode 7 and the last part for the Huns of August series. And what a series it's been. I hope all of you have enjoyed your Christmas. Personally, it couldn't have come and gone fast enough. There's been holiday movies in my house every single day. My wife can't get enough of them. I swear, it's like the North Pole threw up joy all around me. It's like a damn Hallmark nightmare around this place. I mean, all right. Maybe it's not that bad. I mean, I did add some eggnog to a glass of bourbon the other day, and that was quite lovely. Speaking of drinking, a couple episodes ago, I did a bit of a science experiment, a sort of hypothesis on the effects of alcohol while I record this show. I did discover a new element or planet or something along those lines, but I did discover a bit at ease. At ease is defined as free from worry, awkwardness, or problems. Relaxed. Ah. And since this episode will involve the Russians, I decided to go out and get a bottle of vodka for this episode. I was going to get some Stoli, but I decided to go with Crystal Head Vodka. It's the vodka that Dan Aykroyd has a hand in. I heard him talking this up on another podcast, and I've been wanting to try it. And I like his movies, so... Here we are drinking Crystal Head Vodka. But folks, you know why we're here. We're not here to talk about Christmas trees, Noel, spies like us, or vodka. No sir, no ma'am. We're here to talk about the Great War. On the last episode, we talked about Plan 17 being in dire straits. The boys in bright blue are getting their asses handed to them. The Alsace and Ardennes offensive was a complete bust. The only hope it still had at this point was the left flank at the Sambre under the command of General Lindrizek, and his key to success was to come from the support of the British Expeditionary Force at the Mons Canal. Now, both the British and French did lose their battles in August of 1914. However, this wasn't a total defeat, or a total loss is maybe the better word. If it had been a total loss, the war on the Western Front would have ended that month. But it's not over. It's just getting started. But to the soldiers' morale and overall spirit, it probably felt like a total loss. They're starting to think this war may be in fact over by Christmas, just with a German victory. The Schlieffen plan so far hasn't been the smoothest ride, but it seems to be rolling along as planned. Remember, the plan was to meet the Pailus via Belgium, defeat them, then take Paris. And while this was going on, the 8th German Army was to hold down the Eastern Front by keeping the Russians back until the main force could meet up, and then they would pounce on the Russians with a bigger force. They didn't think they could possibly take down the Russians with one division alone. Defeating the Russians would be the final obstacle to victory. Or so, this is what the Schlieffen Plan had laid out. Now that the French and British are in full retreat, let's go ahead and shift over to the Eastern Front. Actually, before we do that, Let's talk about Belgium. Let's talk about the big butt of Belgium. Again, let's give it up for the Belgian soldiers who courageously stood up and fought a much bigger army. They were defeated on the field of battle at Liège, but sadly, this is only the beginning of the suffering for the Belgians. The Belgian soldiers, and even some of its citizens, they just seem to be their own worst enemy at this point. That may sound mean, and I feel bad for saying it, But goddamn, I don't know how else to put it. The Germans gave them an out in Liège. They didn't take it. 
That part I can accept because their loyalty to its friend and ally, the British. And these were soldiers. They did have to put up somewhat of a fight. But then civilians started taking shots at the Germans, causing the Germans to lash out in an atrocious manner. The Huns started murdering and raping the Belgian citizens of their humanity. By the way, if you're wondering why I've been referring to the Germans as Huns, the Belgians dubbed them this when the Imperial Army invaded. Huns were warriors who ravaged, raped, pillaged, and terrorized Europe in the 4th and 5th century under Attila the Hun, hence the Huns. Well, the Belgians decided it would be a good idea to throw some rocks at the hornet's nest. They start taking shots at the Germans. The army leaves Antwerp and tries to pop off some shots, and even worse, across dozens of small towns, civilians start doing the same. And the Germans turn around and say, Oh, so you didn't feel enough of our wrath? They start executing civilians and clergy, hundreds of them. The town of Louvain probably got the worst of it. The town today is a picture-perfect Belgian city, but in August of 1914, it turned into hell almost overnight. The Germans burned down the city, including the university library, which held over 200,000 books, some of them being manuscripts from the Gothic and Renaissance era. The Germans lined the civilians up and started executing them. Several hundred men, women, clergy, and anyone who thought to be a threat or even a friend of the French were killed. There was even reports of rape. Now I know it's not right to say they're their own worst enemy, and nothing could begin to justify the war crimes that the Germans committed, and in no way shape or form am I saying they deserve this. All I'm saying is, the Hornets came in, they stung, then they moved on with a force that keeps getting bigger, and then you start poking at it. That wasn't a very smart thing to do. The Huns already proved what crimes they were capable of. What did they think was going to happen when they started taking shots at them? The army is one thing. If they were under orders, that's another thing. But the civilians? It's hard for me to understand what they were thinking of at this time. But whatever it is they were thinking, it ended horrible for hundreds who probably had nothing to do with any of this. This would be known as the Rape of Belgium. Where's the glory of war that all these boys hope for? This wasn't glory. This was men acting like animals in rage. The bar continues to be set on just how cruel humans can be towards each other. And unfortunately, the bar doesn't stop in Louvain. This war will get much more crueler. Now let's shift over to the Eastern Front and the final battle for the Huns of August, the Battle of Tannenberg. Actually, wait, let me interrupt this again. Before we get to Tannenberg, I'd like to update what was going on over in Eastern Prussia before the battle breaks out. The French urged Russia to begin its attack to ease the pressure off the Western Front. Tsar Nicholas reassured its ally that Germany was its main focus and that Austria was just a secondary. And in order to keep its promise, the Russian government put a prohibition on vodka to ensure its soldiers would move in a timely manner. Apparently, this was a problem in the Russo-Japanese War. Drunk soldiers don't make good fighting soldiers, and it often takes time to clean up the mess, or sober them up. So this time around, Mother Russia told her boys, I'm sorry, comrade, no vodka for you. And now is a good time to give a quick introduction to a man named Rasputin. It's debatable if he should be in the Great War genre. 
I think he should. He had a major influence on the Tsar and the Tsarina during the time of the Great War. Rasputin was a mysterious self-proclaimed holy man who befriended the Romanovs. He actually became an advisor to the Tsar. He was said to have healing powers, which is why Tsarina Alexandra became so close to him. The Tsarina and the Tsar's son Alexei was a hemophiliac, and supposedly Rasputin would heal him. It's also rumored that Rasputin had a special kind of relationship with Tsarina, if you know what I mean. As crazy as he was, he did warn the Tsar that going to war would be his downfall. I'm going to have to do a biography episode on Rasputin in the future. His story is too good to pass up and will take a whole episode. And I think you'll really enjoy this guy's crazy story. In the meantime, if you want to hear about his death, I recommend a podcast called Last Podcast on the Left. They have a series on Rasputin. It's amazing. I'm not affiliated with them in any sort of way. I just really enjoy their show. And this series was freaking hilarious. Death shouldn't be funny, but they somehow make it funny. Anyways, back to Prussia. Moltke ordered the German 8th Army to defend East and West Prussia and not to let themselves be overrun. If they did find themselves being overrun, they were to pull back behind the Vistula and defend it. The Vistula is a river that runs north-south in the middle of what is today Poland. Remember, Poland was part of Prussia back then. Thus, why Hitler ordered Poland to be invaded under Nazi rule. But that's off topic. The German 8th Army in Prussia was commanded by General von Prittwitz, and the deputy chief of operations was Colonel Max Hoffmann. Hoffmann and Prittwitz didn't exactly have the best relationship. Hoffmann viewed Pritt as a weak-minded commander who would be the type to rely on retreat instead of a fight. Hoffmann felt he didn't have the will to win. On August 16th, German Hermann von Francois, commander of the German 8th Army's 1st Corps, entered deep into East Prussia. Coming close to the Russian line, he was ordered by Pritvitz to halt and seize his advance. Remember, Pritvitz was the 8th Army commander, so he was the superior officer to the corps commanders, even though they were all generals. Francois was a fighting general. Retreat wasn't in his vocab. He wanted to get his men up front with the enemy and duke it out. Francois ignored Pritvitz and reported back on August 17th that his corps was engaged in battle at Stalupon. The Russian 1st Army, commanded by General Paul von Rennenkampf, was moving in to join the fight. An infuriated Pritvitz sent a messenger to Francois to stand down. Francois responded with the famous words, Inform General von Pritvitz that General von Francois will break off the engagement when he has defeated the Russians. The Russians moved in and established a line that Francois's men couldn't break through. Francois then retreated back to Gombinin, but not without taking 3,000 Russian prisoners. On August 19th, Francois noticed the Russians weren't taking the offensive, so he pleaded to Pritvitz to give him the green light for another assault. Back and forth, Pritt contemplated, and on the 20th, the new assault was a go. Francois started the assault at 4 a.m. Waves of German attacks kept coming. The Russians were expending everything they had, and then the Russian guns fell silent. They had depleted all its ammunition. The Germans drove them back, causing a 60% Russian casualty rate. The German 17th Corps, under the command of General August von Mackensen, arrived in Gumbinen around 8 a.m. to join in on the 8th Army's new assault. Mackensen's men crossed the river, 
but became entangled on the other side between refugees, wagons, and livestock. By the time they unclusterfucked themselves, the element of surprise was gone and the Russians opened up on them. This was the first time since the start of the war they were on the receiving end of heavy artillery bombardment. The 17th Corps was getting their asses handed to them. The men fell into a frantic retreat, including General Mackinson, who, by the way, was 65 years old at this time. He should have been playing shuffleboard, not war. Pritvitz was hearing about this plan coming apart. Now this weak-minded general, in the eyes of Hoffman, was showing his true colors. Full retreat was being thrown on the table. Overall, the Battle of Gombinin is viewed as a victory for the Russians by most historians although it wasn't really a victory. The Russians did suffer heavy casualties by Francois's men. What defined the victory was the retreat from the 17th Corps. Now both were in a standoff. Pritvitz wanted to retreat to the Vistula. Redenkampf was at a halt. Mackensen was piecing his men back together, and Francois was pleading to Pritvitz not to retreat and to attack while the Russians weren't moving. Gombinin was basically a preliminary to Tannenberg. And this is where the tide takes a major shift. Moltke is fed up with Pritvitz and his can't-do attitude. He relieves Pritt and replaces him with General Paul von Hindenburg, who retired from the military in 1911. He had served under Schlieffen. Hindenburg's full name is, are you ready for this? Paul Ludwig Hans Anton von Beckendorf und von Hindenburg. This guy... When the war broke out, he offered his services, saying if a commander is needed, don't forget about me. He got the call at his home in Hanover to take over the 8th Army, and quickly replied with, Am ready, and was quickly put on a train headed for East Prussia. The next person who was called upon, or rather ordered to support Hindenburg, was General Erich Ludendorff. Remember, he was a general who stormed the city of Liege and took the citadel, and became quite popular with Moltke and the Kaiser. He was called away from the Western Front to be the right hand of Hindenburg and support the 8th Army. The two were to link up on a train headed for the front. Hind and Lude never met, but once they did, they were like two peas in a pod. It's like they became best friends overnight. When they laid eyes on each other, they bro-hugged it out. They were seen showing off their swords signed by the Kaiser. I mean, why wouldn't you have the Kaiser sign your sword? They made brats together. They shared plates of schnitzel while drinking bison beers singing songs. Hen told Lude he had the voice of an angel and swore he took the shape of a black eagle. They were seen practicing fencing at the OHL. They were shitting with the door open. Who does that? Pals do that. Classic. I hope you're getting the references. In all seriousness, they really were the perfect team. Immediately, their personalities clicked, and pals don't really shit with the door open. So if you're my pal, please, still close the door. Hindenburg was good with words, and Ludendorff was good with planning on paper. They complemented each other's style. They needed each other. They really did make a great team. Ludendorff was with von Bülow's second army on the outskirts of Namur when he was told he was needed on the Eastern Front. He was told by HQ he would, he would not be held responsible for what had just happened in the East, being the retreat, and that with his energy, he hopefully would be able to save the situation. After meeting with Moltke and the Kaiser, Ludendorff immediately issued new orders for the 8th Army. 
Francois and his men were to move south to support General Schultz and his 20th Corps, while Mackinson and Von Bellows, not to be confused with Von Bulow on the Western Front, were to rest and regroup until the 23rd. On August 23rd, the Russians started gaining more ground as Schultz and Francois retreated to the city of Tannenberg. They captured two field guns and some prisoners, but they also lost around 4,000 men. Hinden Lude, just about 24 hours after arriving on the Eastern Front, were still unsure whether they were going to bring down Mackinson and Bello for another offensive or hold a defensive position. But, and you know I like those big butts, as they were debating this, a Signal Corps officer brought to them an intercepted message from the Russian 2nd Army, commanded by General Samsonov. Samsonov showed he just ordered his 23rd Corps to the left, the 15th and 13th Corps to the center, and his 6th to the right. They were to attack the retreating force in Tannenberg. They believed the Germans were in retreat, as reported by Russian HQ. The German 8th Army just made up its mind. Throw all its forces onto Samsonov. Ludendorff gave the orders to start the battle in Tannenberg on August 25th with an attack by Francois's 1st Corps. They were to take the left wing of Samsonov's army. Francois refused to attack, saying a good chunk of his infantry and artillery were still regrouping and weren't ready. Ludendorff about crapped his pants in a fit of rage. He immediately got into a car with Hindenburg and drove to Francois' headquarters to confront this insubordinate general. Hoffman followed in a second car. Francois told Ludendorff, Hey, look, if the order is given, I'll attack, but a good chunk of my men won't, won't be ready. Ludendorff, to show Francois who the new sheriff in town was, brushed off this excuse and basically got in his face and said, Look, you son of a bitch, I'm in charge, and when I give you a fucking order, you obey that order, or I'll have you replaced. This Francois fellow had some balls. Ludendorff returned to HQ and reissued his orders. On August 26th, Mackinson's corps, supported by Bellow's corps, was to attack Samsonov's right wing. Schultz, with the support of some reserves, were to attack the center, and Francois was to attack the left wing. By noon, German HQ went into a panic. Francois still hadn't attacked the left wing, stating his gains hadn't been made yet. Lude replied with what was described by Hoffman as very unfriendly responses. Back and forth all day, Francois continued to procrastinate until he felt the moment was right for his men. It was around this time that Supreme Headquarters phoned Ludendorff to tell him they were sending more reserves from the Western Front since they just ach achieved such great victories on the French frontiers. Two corps re were removed from the Western Front to support the East. This will have an impact on what will take place in September. Samsonov was preparing for battle but he knew his men weren't prepared from the lack of food and ammunition. He knew the only chance he had to win this was from Renenkamp's army to move up to support him. Samsonov also knew at this point that he wasn't facing an army in retreat as headquarters believed. He realized this was an army that had regrouped and were coming right at him. I believe that the Russian high command at this point knew Samsonov couldn't defeat the German 8th due to the lack of weapons, ammunition, and food for the troops. Bullets and beans is one of the main elements you need to win a war. But I believe they urged Samsonov to continue on as planned based solely off the promise they made to France to relieve the pressure in the West. Mackinson's corps fell upon the Russian right wing and pounded on them. The Russians fell back 19 miles only to be met by Below's corps and the beatdown continued. The two Russian corps that were supposed to hold the right wing 
at this point had lost all contact with each other. They were in shambles, confused by orders. All they could do was continue with retreat. The Russian center was heavily engaged with Schultz's men and reserves. They too started to fall apart after the 23rd Russian Corps started being pushed back, exposing major gaps in their line. A few miles back from the front at Russian 2nd Army Headquarters, Samsonov was having dinner with some of his staff when they heard some commotion in the streets. What he was doing having dinner is something I'm not able to understand. First of all, his troops are starving. Second, there's a major battle taking place in which he doesn't believe his army can win. How can you be eating dinner at a time like this? He and his men get up to see what all the noise is about, and they realize it's the 23rd Corps running through the street in retreat. He sees firsthand that the men are in horrible condition and are physically exhausted. All he could hear was the men yelling, The Ulans are coming! One regimental commander told Samsonov that his men had not received rations in three days. Three days without rations, and they were supposed to take on the German 8th Army. Samsonov then ordered his famous 1st Corps to hold the line, which was facing Francois at all costs. Ren and Comp should be arriving soon to deliver the final blow. It was on the morning of the 27th that Francois decided now was the time to attack. His artillery was in place and at 4 a.m. opened up on a complete bombardment on the starving famous 1st Corps. It didn't stop. Francois was ruthless. No mercy was shown. Shell after shell poured onto the Russians. Bodies being flung in the air, ripped apart by shrapnel. Injured men were seen screaming for help. They had never been through anything like this. They weren't prepared mentally or physically. By 11 a.m., the still-standing soldiers of the famous first fled in desperation, leaving behind hundreds of mutilated dead comrades. The small city of Uzdal had been taken. The battle had moved on to its third day, and Francois, again ignoring Ludendorff's orders to shift his fire to support Schultz, began another artillery bombardment to his front, advancing his troops. By now, Ludendorff was basically pleading for Francois to obey his orders, but Francois paid no attention. Lude was not a happy man, still unsure if Rennenkampf would show up, waiting to see how the center with Schultz plays out, no communication with Mackinson and below, and of course the insubordinate Francois. However, Hindenburg remained calm during all of this. This was the team. Hinden Hindenburg remained calm, used his words, Lude paced back and forth in anger, running play by play through his head. But by afternoon, Mackinson had sent a messenger by plane to headquarters, reporting much progress being made by both his and Below's corps. Suddenly, Francois' movement straight ahead seemed more justified, and Ludendorff told him to carry on with his plans. But overall, what changed the mood of Ludendorff was the report that Rennenkampf would not make the battle in time to save Samsonov. Victory was looking imminent. Samsonov and Rennenkampf had bad blood since the Russo-Japanese War. It became clear to Sam that Ren was not going to make the effort to help his army. Samsonov was already watching his army being defeated. His only hope laid upon Renenkampf to pull up with help, and it probably would have worked in favor of the Russians. Let's not kid. Although the Germans were winning, they also were fatigued. 
Once Samsonov realized no help was coming, he telephoned HQ to inform them he was leaving the battlefield. He was defeated. Supplies and communication with the Corps at this point were basically non-existent. The men were confused, hungry, desperate, not knowing which way was which. The only still remaining fighting force Samsonov had was facing Francois, and they were about to be ripped apart by artillery. They had no idea the rest of the army had fallen apart. There's several phrases that can describe the state of the Russian Second Army at this time, aside from almost defeated. Clusterfuck, shit show, soup sandwich, gagglefuck, complete chaos. As I was reading about the Battle of Tannenberg and got to the specific point of the Russians running around like chickens with their heads cut off, it sparked a memory, a sort of weird, funny memory that I have to share. In the Army, in the 90s, I went to a course called PLDC, which stands for Primary Leadership Development Course, which is what the name says. It's a basic leadership course you take before getting promoted to sergeant. Well, this was the first time since jump school I attended a school with the rest of the Army. And what I mean by that is men and women from all different fields of the Army were at the school together. I was in the infantry, and then there was a few of us. The rest were what we classified as soft skills, cooks, mechanics, office workers, any and everyone outside combat arms. For a few weeks, you practice DNC, drill and ceremony techniques, basically how to march troops, that sort of bullshit. You were taught how to praise and discipline your soldiers and other stuff like that. And on the last week, you do a field exercise with everyone because it's the army. And this is when I first witnessed a clusterfuck, a real shit show. I was made the RTO in my group for this exercise because I was the only one who knew how to operate this old-ass PRC-77 radio. There was blank ammunition for days, miles gear, which back then was a training instrument used with blanks. It would tell you if you were shot by beeping. Not sure what they use today. We moved out at night, hit the wood line, and all of a sudden, a couple flares go off, and I'm thinking, okay, we made contact, no biggie. Nothing out of the norm. I'm not expecting much from this group, so I wasn't expecting them to take the proper course of action. And they just started shooting off blanks like they're Rambo. I'm watching all these supposed soldiers firing in every direction, yelling. Chaos just breaks out. The supposed platoon leader I was the radio for, he fucking bolts to the wood line. He just takes off running and shooting. I shit you not. I'm just looking at this guy wondering, what the hell's he doing? I see this tree in some bushes and said, F it, I'm going to take a squat and just going to watch this show unfold. There were flares being popped off everywhere, so I can clearly see people running in every direction. I then see my buddy walking in front of me with the same look of confusion, so I call out to him. He sits next to me, and we're both shaking our heads saying, what the F is going on? We just shake our heads and just watch this soup sandwich of a field exercise fall apart. That was the first time I got to experience the regular army in action and just shook my head in disbelief. Have you ever seen the movie Platoon? The last scene at the end where they get overrun by the NVA and flares are going off, people are running everywhere. It really looked like that, but obviously as a training exercise. Anyways, my point to this is, as I was reading about the Russians running around in mass confusion, not knowing which way is which, I could only picture what I witnessed in the army that day. Obviously, I'm not comparing my field exercise at PLDC with anything remotely on a microscopic level to World War I. All I'm saying 
is reading about this chaos unfolding triggered the gaggle fuck memory I have. The Russians at this point didn't know who was in charge. The will to fight was gone after its leaders starved them, then left them to die. Artillery was raining down on them. I really do feel bad for what those soldiers had to endure. Through the days of August 29th and 30th, the remaining Russian soldiers had went into retreat. They hadn't eaten in days. It's amazing they even had the energy to fall back. Those who didn't fall back were either dead or taken prisoner. In fact, around 92,000 Russians were taken as prisoners. It's estimated that 32,000 died during this battle. On the 29th, Samsonov retreated on horseback with some of his staff. Around 1 in the morning, they stopped for a rest. Samsonov went into the wood line and blew his brains out. The Russian second army ceased to exist. The overall victory was now starting to sink in with the German commanders. Colonel Hoffman said years later that Tannenberg was one of the greatest victories for the German Imperial Army. He said the savior was the interception of the Russian communication regarding its plans for Tannenberg. The defeat wasn't the top news in Russia. Instead, they were celebrating a major victory over the Austrians in Galicia. They had inflicted 250,000 casualties upon the Austrians and took an estimated 100,000 prisoners, sending the Austrian army into a major retreat that lasted 18 days. Why would you make the news headlines a defeat at Tannenberg when you have a win with those numbers? But in all honesty, defeating the Austrians didn't really mean as much for the war effort. Defeating the Germans could have changed the course of this war. Russia paid a huge price to take the offensive that was influenced by the French. And after Tannenberg, the French got what they wanted out of this, to pull the German soldiers away from the Western Front. The cores that were pulled would become absent from the upcoming Marne. I named the series The Huns of August, obviously from the influence of Barbara Tuxman's book The Guns of August, but also because August really was the month for the Germans. Remember, going back before the mobilization, I truly believe they were pushed into this by politicians. The French and the Russians teamed up and really thought they were going to come into this and destroy them like nothing. Germany just proved to the world they were not a force to be taken lightly. Lingering over the Allies was the thought that Germany could actually win this war. This was no game. This would not be over and done with by Christmas. But what really stood out for me doing all the research for this episode was the amount of dead piling up. We're going into the hundreds of thousands of with casualties and kills in just the first month. The whole theme of this podcast was intended to be scary. Just repeating those numbers should scare you. Humans are the most violent species on this planet. There's no guarantee something like this couldn't repeat itself. And also think about the nurses and doctors who are being overwhelmed with the wounded. These aren't flesh wounds. These are ghastly wounds. Wounds they've never seen before. Men are being rolled in on carts with jaws missing, mangled faces, guts spilling out, missing ripped apart limbs, burnt bodies, flesh ripped open from shrapnel, and they're expected to, per to perform miracles to save these soldiers' lives. And let's not forget about shock. Even the men who escaped without life-threatening injuries aren't really unhurt. They're mentally scarred. Take the Russian 2nd Army. They got shelled until they couldn't take it anymore. They just ran. You think that's not going to have some sort of effect? And that sort of shock will come to be known as shell shock, or today what is called PTSD, and it's only going to get worse. And I'm going to start wrapping this up right here. The books I read and studied for the Huns of August series are the following. 
the Pulitzer Prize-winning book by Barbara Tuckman, The Guns of August, Peter Hart's book, The Great War, G.J. Meyer's book, A World Undone, Bruno Cabanier's book, August 1914, David Hutchinson's book, Mons, An Artillery Battle, and John Keegan's book, The First World War. Amazing books, all of them. I purchased all my books through Amazon or eBay, so they should be readily available for anyone who's interested in reading. And both sites sell used books, which I think is always a good idea. This has been an amazing series for me. I learned a lot of new history about August of 1914, and I hope you did too. The next episode will take us back to the Western Front on the Marne. This will be the last episode for the year. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas, and I'm wishing everyone a happy new year. I want to thank everyone who is listening for their continued support for the show. You can find OTT on multiple platforms. If there's a platform you can't find me on, please email me at ottgwpodcast at gmail.com and I'll do my best to make it happen. Please leave me a review if you can. It will be much appreciated. You can follow the show on Instagram at ottgwpodcast and on Facebook. Take care, everyone.